we've been in uh, the book of John, and uh, we're going to be jumping into a really precious, very special passage and portion of the book of John, uh, John 17. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, you can go ahead and turn there. We have Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Uh, I'm going to invite Adriana up uh, for our scripture reading here as part of uh, our, our weekly worship as also an expression of one church, many languages. Adriana is going to read in Spanish for us. Juan 17, 3, y esta es la vida eterna que te conozcan a ti, el único Dios verdadero, y a Jesucristo a quien tú has enviado. In uh, previous years, there was um, a great interest in what what happens to us uh, after this life and and there was uh, this interest was particularly uh, expressed in a variety of books or or experiences that had happened of um, uh, like near death experiences and afterlife experiences um, books were written movies were, have been written or uh, uh, done about these experiences like heaven is for real some of you may have remember that. Uh, and there was a kind of a cluster of, of, of books and, and testimonies and events happening around that time. And, and part of this, this kind of this, this fascination, of course, this interest of, in our part of like, what does happen to us after we die? What will heaven be like? We have ideas in our minds, of course, that when we talk about heaven, when we talk about eternal life, it's got to be better than this life, Right? If it's not, then, boy, there's nothing to look forward to. So we, we kind of dream or, or, or try to imagine. We have concepts that we talk about. We talk about hoping to see family members. Um, we, might, we might focus on how heaven is not hell. It's a place of, of, of freedom from bad things. And so... Uh, uh, Jesus saves us from going to a bad place in, in order that we can go to a better place where there are no bad things. Jesus, in our passage today, gives us some insight what, into what exactly is eternal life. What is it really about? And in some ways, what he shares with us can be somewhat deflating because it's not exactly what we expect. But in other ways, it, it is so enlarging. It is so much greater than we can comprehend. If we're willing to let him take us there. And open our hearts and our minds to what it means. You see, what we're going to find in today's passage is Jesus is going to explain. Eternal life is knowing him. Jesus isn't merely the means to a better end. Jesus is that glorious end himself. Let's dive in. John 17. 
We're going to focus on verses 1 through 5 here. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given them authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as, as we come to this moment of, of, of your prayer to the Father, this, we're, we're, we're brought into this incredibly intimate, personal moment of you just naturally conversing with your Father out loud for, for us to hear and to be recorded. This is a prayer for all time. And Lord, you start off this prayer seeking the glory of the Father. And, and, and revealing to us a profound truth, Lord. Help us understand. Help us grip our hearts. Lord, help us not to... Help us not to miss the gravity, the grandeur, that eternal life is knowing you. You alone. In your name we pray. Amen. As we get into today's passage, sometimes I like to give disclaimers, and, and this is one of those days. Today's, today's message and today's passage is going to be a little bit headier, all right? Uh, uh, it, it, it's it's going to require a little more extra mental muscle, stay engaged with me, a little bit more intellectual. Uh, so so uh, uh, do what you need to do, whether it's, you know, pins underneath your, I don't know what it is. Anyway, slap yourself in the face. Here we go. It's God's word and there's good stuff here, but it's going to be a little bit deeper and headier than usual here. Well, we jump into chapter 17 here uh, in, in John, and, and this, the, what we've been in is this, this, the final conversation with, between Jesus and his disciples, and, and, and he, he's done teaching to them uh, these, these great truths they need to hold on to they're gonna, they're, that are going to get them and us through the time between his resurrection and when he returns again. He turns in this moment, and all of a sudden, he, he lifts his eyes, and he begins to pray. He begins to talk with the Father. You can go back a slide, please. He turns to the Father, and, and, and we get this beautiful glimpse of this, this inf- intimate moment that, that we get to hear the heart of Jesus. And in this prayer here, right before he's going to be arrested and then beaten and tortured, he prays. And we're just going to, we're going to get into the beginning of this prayer and, and, but through this prayer, he doesn't pray for himself. He prays for God to be glorified. He prays for, for his immediate disciples around him. And he prays for all of those who will follow him throughout time before he returns. Very unselfish in his heart. And there's something we can learn here as as he comes to this prayer, not just the unselfishness 
of his prayer. But also, when when you consider here, he says, the father, the hour has come. That, That language acknowledges, okay, there is a sovereign plan. There is a plan that God has been working. Nothing can thwart what God's intentions are and, and his goodwill and purposes. And, and that has been Jesus explaining, like, I've got to go to the Father. I'm going to die on your behalf. The only way that, 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 that I can be the true king and savior of the world is I've got to die. And then I'm going to go back to the Father. And that's good because then I'm going to send my spirit to all of you people. This is, the hour has come. This has already been planned here. Now, Jesus shows us something here. It's subtle, but it's so good for us to consider in prayer. We talk about the language of God being sovereign. Okay? Why don't you say that with me? Sovereign. God is sovereign means that he is in control. He is the, he is the, the, the greatest power and authority. There is no other power or authority above him. Now, there are, other, are other powers and authority that are at work in this world, in this life. Ours, personally, but also there's also demonic, satanic, other spiritual forces of evil in the world as well. But God is sovereign means he's above all. Oftentimes when we talk about God is sovereign, he's in control, that can lead us to this sort of sense of fatalism. Well, if God's got a plan, he's going to accomplish it. Why do I need to pray? We'll get his prayer anyways. God's going to do what he wants. There's so much more complicated than that. I like what D.A. Carson says. He said that that God's appointed hour has arrived does not strike Jesus as an excuse for resigned fatalism, but for prayer, precisely because the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. He prays that the glorification might take place. As so often in Scripture, emphasis on God's sovereignty functions as an incentive to pray, not a disincentive. You see, because God is in control, because we trust that, and we want God's purposes to be accomplished, and we want them accomplished not just around us, but in us. It's the incentive for us to come and and seek the Father. Lord, may your will be done. Lord, do work your purposes. Lord, accomplish your greatness and your glory in me, in this world. As Jesus taught us to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. God's sovereignty isn't a reason not to pray. But, but, but more of a motivation for us to come to the Father. That his will might be done. To claim that. And to join him in that. In our own hearts and our lives. John Calvin also adds this. He says now. <clears throat> Jesus most properly betakes himself to prayer. For doctrine has no power. Doctrine is the teaching of God's word or or theology. Has no power if efficacy be not imparted to it from above. He therefore holds out an example to teachers. Not to employ themselves only in sowing the word. But by mingling their prayers with it. To implore the assistance of God. That his blessing may render their labor fruitful. What Calvin is getting at here is another reason for us to pray is that teaching alone, the beauty of the truths of God's word aren't effective enough alone, but we need the spirit of God to come and make the word of God effective in our hearts and our lives. And so we call upon the Lord, like Jesus does here, that all the three hours or more of teaching in the previous chapter may have life in his disciples 
not just in their memory. Prayer is so important. Jesus, being God himself, seeks the Father in prayer because it's powerful. So this prayer here that Jesus, it begins here, we call the high priestly prayer. For, for those of you who may not be, uh, uh, who may be new to the church or unfamiliar with scripture, what that means, a high priest is one who represented the people before God. Jesus is that ultimate priest who represents all of humanity before God the Father. And he does that in this prayer. He's the mediator. He represents us and stands for us and prays for us through John 17. And we'll unpack that in the weeks to come here. But let's get into the content more now of this prayer that Jesus makes here. Jesus prays, glorify your son. He begins this in verse 1, and then he repeats it again in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence. What's happening here is there's this book ending, all right? And there's a form that Jesus is using. Glorify the Son, is what he says in verse 1. And he comes back again in verse 5 and says, glorify me in your presence. And when, when there's this kind of ending, uh, book ending happening, one that happens at, at, that looks similar at the front and at the end, there's, it, it means that, that it's framing, creating a frame around an important point. That the glory of Jesus has to do with what's in the middle. It's like an Oreo, right? We like, the, we like, we like what's in the middle, right? The, that stuff's the good stuff, right? The glory that Jesus taught, glorify your son. He's talking about the language of glory here. We're talking about what what creates honor. Glory relates to to lifting something up, giving it honor, giving it a high place above everything else. Like, like, uh, you know, we we give people positions of of prestige, you know, like, like the queen who recently passed away. She's given a position of honor. There's glory that comes with her position and her role. And she was treated that way. There was specialness of how, who had access to her and how you related with her. There's honor in that position. Jesus speaks of glorify your son, glorify me. Well, what uniquely happens in the life of Jesus and that John captures the theme of glory, of lifting Jesus up, is the irony of him dying in our place on the cross, of being absolutely humiliated and becoming the the most abject horror on the face of the earth, by taking all of sin, all of evil, becoming absolutely rejected by God and all of humanity on the cross. That's his glory. The pathway of Jesus' glory is through the humiliation of the cross. Paul captures this in Philippians chapter two. He, he, he talks about, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What Paul is getting at here, the, 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 the glory of Jesus was to lower himself that he might lift us up. And in lowering himself, God would restore him to his full status. 
You see, Jesus wasn't always a human being, right? When we think about this, at Christmas time, we celebrate God becoming a human. He was always God beforehand. He always existed beforehand. And there was a pre-existent kind of form that Jesus had before he took on a human body. There's a certain kind of glory that was diminished, if you will, that was lost. That, that as human beings, people couldn't see, they, could, they couldn't understand that, that they were beholding God when they, when they stood in the presence of Jesus. And so as a result of the obedience to, to God the Father, Jesus is praying, Lord, let's get this done. There, there, this is go time. Let's do this, God. Let's, let's finish business. I'm going to die. I'm going to accomplish what we planned. Restore me. Restore me to the original relationship and glory that we had before, that we've always had. That glory, I'm going to just give it a, a, a brief, <clears throat> brief description of in Colossians. Paul, Paul shares this about about Jesus kind of pulling the curtain back and trying to share with us some of the glory that Jesus had that he's alluding to the, the, uh, of restore to me that glory that we had before. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This glory that, that, that Paul is beginning to unpack here is encapsulated in a term called transcendence. Say that with me. Transcendence. This, this term transcendence means, means that he is high and above uh, all things, greater than all things, separate from all things. He is the greatest being. It has a sense of distance because he's so high and he's so glorious and above all things that Jesus is the creator of everything. He holds it all together. In fact, everything doesn't just exist because of him. It exists for him. Everything's pointing to him as the transcendent being. Jesus. The carpenter is the creator. Think about this. Part of what what this passage is beginning to unveil for us is the greatness of Jesus we can't appreciate how good Jesus is and, 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 and this next part of how, how knowing him is eternal life, is how good this is without understanding how, how majestic he is, how huge he is. If he's above all things, think, think of, consider how big the universe is. It's 125 billion galaxies in the universe. Just take a moment. In the Milky Way alone, there's 100 to 400 billion stars. In, the Milky, in our galaxy alone, 100 to 400 billion stars. 
Think about how big that is. That's one galaxy. It's 125 billion galaxies that we can estimate, right? Because that's all we can do because it's so huge. We can't fully know it and comprehend it with the tools and resources that we have. There is two, there, there's estimated to be 200 billion trillion. Like when you have to start like putting big numbers together, you know it's something like huge and mind-blowing. It's, it's too, like 10 to the 22nd or 24th in terms of the zeros just keep going, right? Like how huge is that? 200 billion trillion stars. Jesus made them all. And not only that, when you consider just the intricacy, the complexity of God's creation, just of you and I, human beings, our DNA, each strand of our DNA consists of three billion pairs of genetic information. The the, the programming that, that gives you your eye color and, 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 and your fingernail prints and, 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 and your melanin, your, your, your skin color and your, and your, your, your baldness and, or hair, if you are fortunate to have some. All these things that make you uniquely you are, are bound up in what's called DNA. And, 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 and first off, we have, you know, six, eight billion people on the face of this earth. And, and every DNA is unique. And, and each piece of DNA, what is it? Three billion pairs? Like how complex that is. You didn't happen. You were designed with attention to detail. The God who made 200 billion trillion stars also made you with exquisite beauty and detail. This is Jesus. Is he not glorious? This God who is transcendent is not far off He came near, and he wants us to know him. This transcendent God of glory, creator of the universe, is knowable and wants us to know him. When you think of any kind of of, of being, like, like the queen, for example, you can't just set up an appointment any day, like, and just get on a waiting list and, like, guaranteed, I'm going to go see the queen. No, it doesn't happen. Like, most people on the face of the earth will never, did ever, see the queen in all of her long life and rule. Not going to happen. There's something about transcendence that is distance that's maintained, and you just won't know the queen. You won't know the king. You won't know the president. It's just not going to happen. You don't have those privileges. You're just not special enough. Sorry. But the king of kings, the king of kings wants you to know him. He knows you, and he wants to be known. You know, the, the interesting thing about this, 
Because Jesus is transcendent, he's self-sufficient. He's uncaused. He's outside of time. He, he's independent of that which he created. He's completely self-sufficient. When we want to be known, it's because we, we, have, we have a need to be known. Jesus wanting us to know him isn't for his benefit, it's for ours. Because he is Love. He is goodness. He is the ultimate source of all things that that are beautiful and glorious and pleasurable and desirable. It's him that's the source. He is life. He is meaning and purpose. Him inviting us to know him is not for him. It's for us. The king of kings has no Guards, no gates, no, no, no fences. He only has open arms and he says, come. Know me, that you can know who you are. That you can know your existence and purpose and meaning in this life. That you can know eternal life. John captures earlier in, in the, his gospel explaining the, the, the nearness, the nearness of Jesus. This is the contrasting thing that makes the, the, the Bible so radical and so different than any other religion, Christianity and Christ. That you've got a transcendent God above all things, powerful, sovereign, and then he's near us. He comes to us. He's knowable. This is unlike any other kind of religion. In in John chapter 1, verse 11, he says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In verse 14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, though, he has made him known. God came near has come near in Jesus so that we can know. This isn't some kind of intellectual kind of concept. When Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. He's not talking about, well, like we've studied it, and like Ian, my older son, is in, in college classes. And, and you know when you're, you're reading for college classes, you're studying for the test, right? And you're like learning, where do I got to underline? And which, where, which, which definitions do I have to remember for that multiple choice test or that essay? And, you know, it's, this isn't something that we're to intellectually kind of uh, memorize and, and understand the mechanics and, and, and details about what is God and who is he. And that's so impersonable. And let's just get real. It's boring. All right. It's more death-producing than it is life-producing. What he's talking about here in knowing God and Jesus, this language is a relational knowledge. It's experiential knowledge that comes from happening in a personal relationship. Think Think of a good friend that you know. You know them, their character, how good they are, or, or, their, or their, their idiosyncrasies, their habits, their their kindness, what makes them tick, how they're going to respond, whether they're introvert, extrovert, what pushes their buttons. You know this from experience, right? You may know their buttons, and you still choose to push them anyways. 
because you find joy and pleasure in pushing their buttons, whatever their response is. Sorry, Jane. I love you. Pray for me. This knowledge of Jesus is this intimate, experiential kind of knowledge that comes from being engaged with, in trust, in faith. You cannot know that God is faithful without having trusted his promises. You cannot know the peace of Jesus without receiving the lordship of the Prince of Peace in our life. We can't know the goodness of Jesus without satisfying ourselves with him, in him. We can't know his care and comfort in our suffering without stepping beyond our feelings to receive his presence, to receive his suffering with us in the darkness. We won't know his, that he is wise if we've not humbly followed his teachings and his wisdom. This isn't something that you can study. Jesus isn't merely something you can study. God is the full revelation. Jesus is the full revelation of God. And we can know God because Jesus came and showed us God in the flesh. We must be engaged with the person of Jesus. In order to experience the pleasure, the goodness, the peace, the joy, all the things that we want and need in Jesus. What this raises is something profound. When we look at this and we take this in, knowing Jesus is eternal life. Remember that, that, that verse that, we, that, that, that many of us have known from a young age, or you maybe see plastered all over the place in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. What is eternal life? Jesus explains. Knowing God, knowing Jesus. Now let's take this in. At first blush, some of us might be like, well, that's kind of a bummer. I was really hoping for a lot more. Partly, this happens to us when we think of what is, what's go, what is heaven going to be like? Well, it's not, it's not flying around on clouds, strumming harps in a toga. Not going to be that. While there may be loved ones there, it's not a family reunion. That's not what heaven's about. And while, yes, there will be no evil and no more suffering, it's a better place. But it's only a better place because of Jesus. 
Because it is the uninhibited presence of God. Something we miss oftentimes when we're coming to this place of engaging Jesus, God, Christianity, the afterlife, we oftentimes are more focused on what Jesus does for us, the ends that Jesus gives us. He he becomes the means to an end. Get me out of this bad life. Get me out of the bad place and into the good place. Secure for me a better future. We're more interested in fire insurance than we are in the king of kings himself something we got to be honest about and be real about. Jesus isn't just the means of getting us, of paying our penalty and getting us out of hell. He's not merely fire insurance. He is heaven itself. Do you you understand that? Do Do you see that and understand that in these words? You see, if we do not, if, if we're looking like Jesus, I want a place and I don't want to suffer anymore. If, if our desire, if our heart, if our coming to Jesus is only, I want the better place. I want what you can give me is what we're saying. And our heart is not Jesus himself. Friends, we're still headed to the hot place. You see, we mistake Jesus, that his salvation coming to him, Lord Jesus, save me, is for him to be our desire, our priority, to be our everything now and then. You see, if you don't want Jesus and a relationship with him now, if he's just an inconvenience, if he's just a means to an end now, then eternity is only and always about him. You've never really wanted him. You've never really wanted heaven itself. We've got to come to grips with that. There's a lot of different ways that we express this, and and this is part of our brokenness in this life. We make good things means instead of ends. Think about it in terms of relationships. I remember growing up and, and, and some neighbors who I would have called friends, but they had a Super Nintendo. And I was, they were my friends, so I could go play Super Nintendo. Looking back as an adult, I would say, I didn't so much care about them as much as I cared about Super Nintendo. And wanting to play Super Nintendo. And that, that, that's kind of a childish example, but we do this in, in a variety of our relationships. There's people that they have things that we get from them, whether it's self-esteem. That we don't necessarily care so much. We're honest. Like, we have to check ourselves. I'm more interested in the, I get value from that person rather than I care about that person. Men can do this in marriage where their wives can be a means to sex and pleasure as an end and not the person of your spouse. Man, it's real. You know it is. 
wives, you can make your husband or a man the, the, the means to your value, your self-worth, and your identity. It happens. And not desiring the person themselves. We do that with friendships in a variety of whether it's status, access to things, whatever it may be. We do that because we have sin in us. We make ends means. We use things. We use people and we use Jesus. We use Jesus because we want him to change our circumstances, but we don't want Jesus in our circumstances. We don't want how he's wanting to work in us and how he's wanting to make us like him. We turn to him as a crutch for when things go wrong. Rather than seeking him at all times, even when things are good, we don't give him praise. We don't glorify him. We don't acknowledge him. Just get me out of the bad stuff. Get me out of the gutter. I'm in a bad way again. Jesus, help. Give me identity and value. You make me feel better. Of course, the ultimate, get me out of hell. Get me out of the consequences of my choices. Get me out of the consequences of my sin. Because I don't want to experience the consequences. But do we want him? Why is it so different? All these things that we want, whether it's peace. The good things in this life, love. Sex even is God given. The pleasure, beauty. That we can take in things in this, in this world visually and experience beauty and awe. When we go to the mountains or, or the ocean or, or, or the, the landscape as the sun just strikes the corn as it's rising and a bit haze on its, on its sunset and just that beauty. We take it in and there's something that happens inside of us. We experience pleasure in that and joy in it. Music. What it does for our heart and our soul. The joy of friendship and companionship. All these things, we tend to make these things ultimate things. But these things are like the shadow. They're just merely a shadow of the real thing. They all come from Jesus. These are good things that are part of the nature and character of Jesus. Joys, pleasures, beauty. All these things he's given us and they come from him. These things that he's given us are not the ends, but they should lead us to him of joy and worship. God, you are so good. Thank you for this. Thank you for this person. All your goodness in this moment. And what we don't often recognize is his goodness of the cross shows us he's in our hell with us. He's in the darkest moments with us. And that is the greatest sign of eternal life. These good things all around us are shadows. Now, we don't see that because they're tangible. We, get the, we feel that we can feel it. We can experience it. Because of those things, we feel like those, they're, they're the end. But really, the things that we make the end, they're just the means. Food, music, relationships, all these are means to pointing us to Jesus. You see, we're going to have all, all, all of these things experience joy, Unending. David captures this well. Psalm 
16 says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David giving us a view of of heaven. He knew it thousands of years ago. It was God himself. God himself. All the things that we're looking for in this life are ultimately found in Jesus. And eternal life, therefore, knowing him. I hope this, just for a moment, begins to open our imagination to what heaven might be like. Joy unending. Pleasure. Pleasure. Because it's in his presence. Because of him. He's always been the source of it. There's so much more. What we, our problem isn't that heaven is so small and eternal life in Jesus Christ is, is, is an insignificant thing or is a small thing or a dull thing. Or that's not the problem about eternal The problem is we lack imagination to, 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 and the capacity to consider how glorious eternal life is in Jesus himself, which makes us satisfied with lesser things now. As I started the service here with Psalm 63, it has more context, I think, now. Think of David's desire because he understands Jesus isn't a means to a better end. He is the glorious end himself. David gets it, and that's why he's passionate. That's why his heart is full with desire. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you upon you in the watches of the night, for you've been my help. In the, the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Friends, my, my prayer, my hope, is that David's prayer might be our prayer, that we might experience. Can you imagine that passion? That desire being yours. Friends, this morning is an invitation. We might need to repent. We might need to repent and acknowledge Jesus in various ways. I've just wanted things from you. And I've not wanted you. Forgive me. Help me to want you. Like, like David desired you. Let those words be mine, Jesus. Let the the good things in this life lead me towards you. Let let, let them propel me to worship you and desire you. Not, Not to be satisfied with them alone. Not to make them the end. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe for you, for the first time, you need to actually believe. What you've relied on is just merely fire insurance. Jesus, I want you to be my savior. Save me from the consequences of my sin. But you've not actually wanted Jesus. So much more he has for you. When he, he alone is eternal life for you. When he is your desire and your delight 
come and believe. Come and believe now. And experience that. I'm going to have the worship team come on forward here. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, enlarge our heart. Enlarge our vision and our mind, Jesus. Lord, we, we, we get so satisfied with the things of this life that, that, that are tangible. But God, but God we, for, we neglect to remember how you, they point to you, Jesus, and, and you in all your glory, that you have more than enough capacity to not just satisfy one person, but every human being that exists, Lord, to make us alive, to fulfill us. You give us purpose, but all those things, they're yours. They come from you and they point back to you, Jesus. Peace, love, joy. Oh, God. Teach us to hunger. Teach us that we might not be satisfied until we're satisfied with you. Show us eternal life. Blow open our imagination and our experience as we turn from merely just wanting what we can get from you to wanting you.